Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us today for a very special edition of Zoom Into Books and also our Big Time Talker podcast brought to you by our friends at Headline Books and SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If, uh, if you've been paying attention to the media in the last week, you certainly have seen the news, seen the images uh, of what's happening in Afghanistan. The world has changed quite a bit. And I've asked my old friend, Nasir Shansab, to join me here in the Allen Media Strategies uh, Studios here uh, in suburban Washington, D.C., to bring some insight uh, to what's happening there. Nasir is an American citizen who's been here since 1980, but was born in Afghanistan. And he's the author of the book, Silent Treaties, which uh, we'll talk about uh, in depth. But first, uh, Nasir, I want to read something that you wrote in September uh, 2013 for the Diplomatic Courier, which I, I thought was really interesting. Again, September 2013, Nasir writes, as long as its present leaders rule Afghanistan, nothing will change. And the products of chaos, they've thrived by it. They abhor the rule of law, would do anything to thwart it. Under these conditions, elections will be meaningless. The country will gradually, but inevitably, slide into, uh, slide into mayhem. And uh, boy, that's exactly where we are right now. Yes, indeed. So I'm, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm very sorry about what's happening in in the country that you were born in. Uh, and, and this is a big question, but how did we get here? Uh, well, uh, we made uh, quite a bit of uh, mistakes. Uh, um, uh, we should have not actually gone to Afghanistan. And 9-11 and perhaps made it inevitable for, for the United States to go into Afghanistan. But we should have just left it as soon as, as we thought we did what, what we wanted to do. And we didn't do that. Uh, but we also uh, installed uh, in power uh, people uh, who really didn't care for, for the rule of law, uh, who didn't care uh, for, uh, for uh, uh, rebuilding the country. Uh, the United States has paid more in today's dollars that the United States uh, spent in the, in the Marshall Plan after World War II to rebuild Japan and, and Germany. But when you go to Afghanistan, and I, I was just there a few months ago, uh, you don't see what has <laughs> what has happened in Afghanistan because nothing has happened, almost nothing, and uh, most of this was stolen. And uh, we have what what Afghanistan didn't have, it has now, uh, which is um, a good number of billionaires and a large number of millionaires. But the people live in in, in poverty. Uh, and insecurity, uh, and it's a, a traumatic thing to go there and see it. If you're just joining us and you're scrolling through on Facebook Live, Monsieur Shansab is our guest today on Zoom into Books and on our special edition of the Big Time Talker podcast. Uh, he's an American citizen. You've been in the country for over 40 years, but still maintain a home in Kabul. And as you said, you were just there a few months ago. Uh, as you saw this unfold on television, what were your initial thoughts? Um, it's it's a nightmare, uh, but uh, I was not surprised uh, because it, just about uh, in, uh, early in March, uh, I wrote a piece 
And um, I, I, I really say it that uh, I don't want to say that I, 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 I told you so. Because you I, told you said, you so. I told you so. You did. <laughs> but 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 I did say that something like that would happen if we did not plan the exit properly. Uh, I don't mind that the United States leaving uh, because we really didn't do anything there and uh, and spend a lot of money and a lot of blood uh, and uh, and that's fine. But I I always thought that when when we did go. Uh, leave the, that country, we should have planned it properly and give it a little more time. After 20 years, even if we got it a year to plan for it and do the, the, the exit properly, I think would have been better. But what happened is, has happened and we can't change it now. If you have questions about Afghanistan or about Nasir's book, Silent Trees, you can always post them in the chat room and We'll be happy to answer those as we go along. Uh, if you happen to be watching the Facebook Live presentation, you mentioned this uh, this article that you wrote in March of this year. And as I recall, uh, President Biden in April uh, threw the gauntlet down and said, "You know, we're going to be out of there by September 11th." A month before that, yeah, this is what you wrote. Uh, this is uh, from an article that that Nasir had placed in March of this year. This is not a country to be abandoned. This is a country in urgent need of an honest and functioning government. This is a country in urgent need of the rule of law and strong institutions, it needs to be supported for a few years with foreign funding and controlled economic planning and investments. That is a challenge. It's something America has done before and can do now, not only for the sake of the Afghan people, but also for the sake of America's reputation and credibility. So uh, indeed, you did, I told you so, and I get <laughs> it. Uh, and you and I have talked about this for many years, uh, that there's an enormous amount of corruption within the government there. Uh, you've also talked about literacy, the lack of literacy throughout most of the country being a real problem. What's the number one issue that has caused so many countries to think they can come in and right the ship there and it never happens. Well, uh, one thing they should have done is study Afghanistan's uh, history. Uh, Afghanistan has been invaded many times and the people or the countries that invaded Afghanistan left humiliated. Uh, it's, a, it's a harsh country. Uh, it has a very harsh climate. It's very mountainous and a normal, uh, heavily armored uh, uh, military unit cannot fight the Afghans because they are they know their they, they know their mountains. Uh, they know uh, how to climb. They know how to walk. They don't eat as well as we do, and they don't eat as much sugar as we do. Uh, so they are slim and and uh, <laughs> and can walk uh, for hours. If we send an American soldier with 60 pounds on top of his back and, and, and heavy boots, it's very difficult to, to hunt those people. Uh, and, but, 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 but this has happened before and it happened now uh, in, in our time, um, and that's fine. Uh, but, but, uh, uh, but what I think, I think we should have done is not stay as long as we did, number one, and uh, number two, if we did stay as long as we wanted to, and, as, and if we did really want to help Afghanistan, 
we should have chosen people of integrity, uh, people who would have not stolen money, who would have not, uh, uh, who would have really worked for the country and the people. Uh, and I think the people deserved that and needed it. And uh, we didn't do it, um, and the people took advantage of it, uh, and and ultimately this is what happened. I want to take uh, our viewers and our listeners back into um, your childhood. You grew up there, and you're a very modest guy. But you know, I did my research. Your family was somewhat akin to the Kennedy family here in in the United States. You were raised by a wealthy businessman father, who then sent you away to boarding school in Germany. And after that, you went back to Afghanistan as a young man. Tell me about that time in your life. Uh, when I went back, <clears throat> I, 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 I was very, quite young, 24 years old when I went back. Uh, I didn't know much of Afghanistan and didn't, didn't have any friends. Uh, but I, I did uh, uh, get to know uh, two, three people. And I said, we have to do for the politics of Afghanistan because it was a dictatorship. Um, and I remember we were so afraid of being watched or heard that we went outside Kabul for about 100 kilometers or 80 kilometers and went into a, into a, into a garden and sat, on, <laughs> and sat behind a tree, under a tree and talked. And two days later, I was walking through, through a bazaar in Kabul and the secret police got me, took me to their headquarters, and they said, look, you are the son of a good man. If you do this again, we will break your teeth. Wow. So it was very efficient. I didn't know it was so efficient. So do you think that the fact that so few uh, Afghanis have that global perspective that you gained as a young man, you know, you, you left the country, you went somewhere else to school, you got an education. Does the lack of that global perspective and that education really cause a lot of, of the, the generational issues there? Well, uh, I'm, I'm certain that the lack of good education and, and in terms of Afghanistan, the lack of actual of real education uh, is, 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 a, is a terrible tragedy for the country and for the people. Uh, in, the, in the countryside, um, there's almost no education and 80 percent of the afghan people are today in the year 2021 uh, are illiterate uh, the army uh, where where we thought the army would fight well 11 percent of the soldiers in the army are literate the rest are all illiterate mm. and uh, and that's a tragedy we had in the 19th, from the 1930s till about the 1970s, we had a peaceful, internal, internal peaceful country. And we could have trained and educated at least two generations of Afghans. But the psychology was, and, 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 and the policy was that a, a educated population uh, would uh, would uh, get rid of the government, and the government was actually at that time a, a family government. They, they, they felt that they owned the country, that they owned the people, um, and they didn't want the people to to know to think. The best was to keep them as dumb as possible, and they did it, did do it, and they did succeed in it. 
you left Afghanistan and and moved with your family here to the United States in 1980. Yes. There was a time in the, the 1980s that you consulted uh, the Reagan White House as the Soviets battled Afghanistan. I think enough time has passed now. Statue of Limitations is up. Can you tell us the nature of, of what you did with the White House? Uh, I did basically what I'm uh, uh, trying to do today. At that time, uh, my suggestion was not to interfere with the resistance, to help the resistance. And when, when the Taliban came, and, and, and I knew that the resistance was very split, and I, I, I found out, I, 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 I knew most of them, most of the leaders. And I think it was in, in, in February, uh, 1980, uh, 1982, or uh, just before 82, probably, uh, uh, there was a conference of about Afghanistan in Geneva, and the Soviet Union, the then Soviet Union, agreed to leave uh, Afghanistan. And, uh, and uh, I, I immediately went to shower and talked to all the leaders, got them all together, and told them, you are going to win, you are going to to, uh, to take the country, but you have a lot of problems among themselves and you have to solve the problems, talk about them, solve them, and then go to Afghanistan. And one of the leaders uh, whom I knew very well and I trusted, uh, he turned to me and said, uh, this is uh, a lie, uh, what the, the uh, enemies uh, of the resistance speak of. We are, we are all friends, we have no problems. And the problem was uh, they went into Afghanistan with all the problems between them and uh, started, a, started a civil war, a very savage, a very bloody civil war, instructive civil war. And that is actually why the Taliban came about. Monsieur Shan Saab is our guest today on Zoom into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast. If you have a question or a comment for Nasir, like to talk about Afghanistan or his book, Silent Trees, and you're watching on Facebook Live now, send us a message in the chat room. We'll be happy to, to field that question. Um, and you can pick up Silent Trees at headlinebooks.com, amazon.com, or wherever uh, books are sold. Nasir, if I recall this correctly, there was a time when you very briefly met one of the most infamous uh, criminals in the world. And because of that uh, criminal being in Afghanistan, that was a, a big reason for the Americans to occupy that country in the first place. Tell me about the time that, that you as a young man met Osama bin Laden. Yes, uh, I met Osama bin Laden. Somebody had uh, had spoken about me to him. He was in Peshawar, Pakistan, uh, and he was an ally of the United States at that time because he was helping uh, the Afghan resistance uh, against the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. And people forget that, that he uh, at one time, Osama bin Laden <laughs> yeah. was an ally of the United States. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, he invited me to, to, to breakfast at the Intercontinental Hotel in, um, in Peshawar. And we sat together and had uh, breakfast. And I must tell you, I didn't like him. Uh, I didn't know what he would be ultimately, but uh, even then, he was a very tall man, uh, uh, 
I, I, I felt very small when I stood beside him. Uh, uh, when, uh, one of the first thing he did, he ordered uh, fresh oranges and I did the same. And the, uh, the waiter came back and brought the fresh orange juice and he sipped from it and, and said, this is not orange and this is not fresh. And he, were, he cursed them very badly. And those people are poor, they are, they, they are not paid well. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so I stopped them. I said, no, this is fresh orange juice. Maybe not made right now, but maybe made an hour ago. Um, and he didn't like that, and, and I didn't like him, and he didn't like me. <laughs> uh, but we did, we did, uh, and, and I also saw that he was treating Afghans very badly. Afghans who claimed, rightly or wrongly, uh, to be fighting uh, for the resistance inside Afghanistan and needed money. While we were having a breakfast, they would come, sit at the table, tell them their story, and he would throw uh, uh, packages of 100 dollar bills to them and let him go uh, there was no control <laughs> there was no questions it was a it was a it was a very corrupt and stupid way of doing it in my mind at least um, and I never saw him again and I, I never talked to him again and uh, the next time I I, I, I heard his name was uh, when he was a, a big big enemy of the United States Wow Monsieur Shansab, our guest today on Zoom into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast, we're talking about his birth country of Afghanistan, and the book is Silent Trees. We got a copy of it here. Uh, Nasir also wrote a book uh, sometime back called Soviet Expansion in the Third World. It's a case study of Afghanistan. This is Silent Trees. This is a a fiction novel, but as I read this book, an awful lot of what you wrote about in this book. Uh, boy, it, it sure is taking from real life. The corruption, for example, you talk about it in the police there. You've experienced that firsthand. Well, um, Afghanistan uh, was uh, a dictatorship from the beginning. It was a very isolated uh, third world country. Uh, nobody knew much about Afghanistan, as no, most Afghans didn't know much about, uh, about the outside world. Most Afghans at that time felt that Afghanistan was the center of the world uh, and, and all, all the rest of the world is, wants just to grab it. <laughs> and they were very proud of being totally isolated and not having to do with anybody else. Uh, and uh, so uh, uh, it was not very different from, uh, from today's Afghanistan because nothing much has really changed. The countryside is still illiterate mostly and, and, and still very, very poor. Uh, the cities are um, chaotic a little bit, very corrupt. The police is corrupt. Everybody is corrupt. Uh, the, it's, uh, it, it has not really evolved. And uh, it, it, it lives in a different era. I believe that most Afghans uh, live uh, uh, in terms of, of, of the way they look at the world, of the way they look at themselves, of the way they look at religion, uh, maybe, uh, maybe in the darkest Middle Ages. Uh, and, and I think that's a, that's a real, real big problem. Uh, the gap between today's lifestyle, uh, today's values, 
in the gap that is in Afghanistan uh, to bridge that it's, it's too large to bridge it easily. Uh, but uh, I had uh, I had requested uh, Washington at that time when when the Taliban came came into being and and take took Afghanistan. I said, let us not show them. Uh, 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 show them, uh, frighten them from us. Let us give them uh, the ability to think that we are not trying to get rid of them. And I, I said, let us go there and help them economically and change them slowly and gradually. Uh, of course, uh, the 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 warmongers wanted to, to get rid of them immediately. And some Afghans, like uh, Mr. Karzai, who became the president of Afghanistan, said, give me 200 men and I will kick them out of Afghanistan. <laughs> and, and that was, of course, a big lie. <laughs> and a lot of Americans believed that. Um, and, and that was a tragedy that we actually did not, from the beginning, try to, to be a partner to them. And maybe we would have, we would have uh, avoided 9-11, it's a possibility. If we have had, uh, had had a, a good relationship with them, maybe they would have not hosted somebody like, like, like uh, Bin Laden. There's some people that, that I'm sure who have seen all this unfold uh, with Afghanistan's very rapid fall, who would say, uh, look, there were, you know, 18,000 interpreters and their families, and they should be given safe passage to America or other countries. Whereas other folks would say, you're just inviting more potential terrorists into the country. There's no way we should do that. Um, you've got a unique perspective on that because you have been an American citizen for over 40 years now. You've also maintained a home in Kabul and you've gone back on occasion. Where do you fall on what should happen with with these uh, Afghanistan citizens who helped Americans? Uh, number one, I, I, I really think that the Afghans have never done anything that we would call international terrorism. There's no background in Afghanistan of that. Number two, these people have worked as interpreters or, or chauffeurs or drivers or something like that. For, for now uh, two decades for, for the American forces, for the American personnel, for American companies. And uh, they are really afraid, rightly or wrongly, I can't judge it really, but they are afraid that they will be killed when the Taliban actually settle down and take over the country. Uh, I believe that we have as Americans and America has as a country, uh, a responsibility to get them out. They are not terrorists. Uh, they are simple people. Uh, they are not wealthy. They are not terribly educated. Uh, they have families, they have children, and they are terribly afraid. I believe that we have a responsibility to, uh, to, take the, to, to bring them in. You also said earlier, you don't believe that America should be there forever. Um, and I think most people would agree with that. When and how should that drawdown have happened? Because clearly what happened uh, was in no one's best interest. It didn't work out well. So how should it have been executed properly? I think uh, uh, when, when the United States went into Afghanistan 
after 9-11, uh, we should have gone with a, a real a big military force um, and then decided for the country uh, what to do with it. Uh, we did not do that. Uh, if, if we wanted, if we had plans for staying a long time, uh, but we went there with a very light military force. Uh, we went there with uh, uh, with uh, uh, people from the CIA, uh, with big uh, big uh, 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 sacks of uh, full of one hundred dollar bills, and we actually bought the worst of the worst in that society, the warlords, the drug kingpins, to to fight the America as well. And the beginning was a bad beginning and uh, it, it continued and we didn't change. Uh, it took about 10 years and maybe in, in 2009, we decided to stay longer and we decided to, to, uh, to in, enlarge the American presence there, the military presence, and also to, to make investments in the rebuilding of the country. But it was a little bit too late because the Taliban uh, in Pakistan had resurrected themselves, uh, rebuilt themselves, uh, and had a force, and had already entered Afghanistan, the countryside, uh, and uh, it didn't work out. It was maybe too late. Uh, we we wanted to do it. That we should have done right in the beginning, but we didn't do it. And when we did it, I think it was too late. So is President Biden to blame for not listening to his intelligence that said this was going to happen? Uh, or as some others have said, is there plenty of blame to go around through a whole lot of different folks? <laughs> I think that the, 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 the latter the latter is correct. Yeah. Uh, it's not one man uh, who's responsible or two people. I think it's the administration as a whole uh, mishandled the, the, the policy. Uh, uh, around Afghanistan. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, uh, President Biden, uh, a few years ago in a meeting in the White House, uh, uh, somebody told him, I think, I think General Petraeus said in the meeting that the, the government of Afghanistan was a, was a criminal enterprise. And it was then Deputy, then Vice President Biden, who said, but if the country is, if the government is a criminal enterprise, what does it mean if we send more troops there? And the question was, shall we send more troops or not? And, and nobody answered. That question remained unanswered. So I, I think he was, he was, uh, for, for, for quite a number of years, uh, not happy with, with Afghanistan and with the US, what the US did in Afghanistan. Uh, so I think that uh, his uh, a little bit uh, uh, sudden, uh, sudden uh, decision to get out, uh, it was probably, he probably had that inclination. Was not so sudden after all. I don't think it was so sudden after all, yes. Our guest is but, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You can't be in his head. Understood. No, not in his head. Yes. Nasir Shan Saab is our guest today, and uh, we're talking about Afghanistan. And Nasir's book, Silent Trees, a a book about power and passion in war torn Afghanistan. It's available now from Headline Books. 
uh, also at uh, Amazon.com, and it's on Headline Books publisher page imprint. And it's a, a very interesting, uh, almost a thriller, a police thriller, if you will, set in the, the 1970s in, in Afghanistan. And uh, I just I really love this book. I learned from the book, but I also, it's an old fashioned page turner. Um, you actually, several years ago, um, and, and you're very modest about it. You didn't bring it up other than that. I said, oh, where, where have you been on your most recent trip? And you said, well, I just got back from England. And I said, well, what were yep. you doing there? And you said, well, I address Parliament. And I said, what? So you find yourself in some pretty interesting rooms based on what? Your background in Afghanistan? People are, are just puzzled by this enigma of a country and, and you bring insight? Well, um, uh I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a school in Europe uh, where there were uh, students from all over Europe. Okay. Uh, French students, British students, and Germans, of course, Austrians. Um, so so I, got, <laughs> I got to know a lot of people. I grew up with them. We, we, we lived together, we ate together. And that, of course, was very helpful. And it's very fun. I just received an email. Uh, they want me to come to London <laughs> to talk to talk to one of the uh, large uh, think tanks and also to uh, to talk. It's it's not the parliament really. It is it is the parliament house. Um, uh, I have not gone to the parliament itself to talk to them, but in the parliament house they usually invite and 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 guests come. Um, and I have been there, I don't know, four or five times during the last 10 years or so. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, we know each other. The point is that we as humans have to get to know each other. Once we do that, then a lot of the problems we see in other people, in other cultures, will evaporate, will not be there. That's what, what helped me. <laughs> I like that attitude. Um, we've talked about policy. I want to put a human face on, on what we're seeing. And, and I think the, the image of those hundreds, thousands of uh, folks in Afghanistan on the runway chasing after those C-130s will be you know, seared into my mind forever. How much desperation do the people there must feel because of the, the Taliban being in the country to run after airplanes and try to hang on Tom Cruise Mission Impossible style to get out of the country? Well, uh, the first time uh, when the Taliban took over the country in 1996 uh, till 2001, um, it was it was something um, uh, it, it was a government that behaved uh, uh, like perhaps the governments did uh, in the year 1200. Wow. Um, and this was very harsh. Uh, but they, they really interfered in the in the private life of the people. And and that was very hard for the people. And the, the Taliban then I think uh, I think felt uh, that they can live uh, totally isolated from the outside world, and they had no economy, uh, so there was a lot of poverty, um, a lot of harsh treatment of people, uh, total isolation of of women, um, and I it's very hard for me to understand because we didn't go through that, 
to understand uh, how much fear these people uh, these people felt for what they actually did. I mean, they, 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 it was it was absolutely chaotic. Uh, it was a it was it was terrible to watch it. Uh, maybe maybe that's the fear. And of course, people who work with the foreign community in the last twenty in the last twenty years, uh, they were afraid. And I'm also sure that people who were very corrupt and became very rich, some of them were probably very frightened. Uh, but I, I very much hope that the Taliban in the last 20 years have changed. Uh, I don't think they have changed too much. Uh, but, but So you don't least, buy into this uh, kinder, gentler Taliban that they're presenting themselves? Well, uh, I think I would wait for the, for the, uh, uh, for the dust to settle and then make a judgment. Uh, uh, I, I heard the spokesperson speak yesterday uh, and in front of the media, and I must tell you, he was uh, very convincing. Um, it was a good speech. I mean, if if they if they have changed to that extent, I, I think they might be a good good solution for the Afghan problem. And but just the fact that they are speaking to the media and uncovered—that's a thing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You, you've maintained a home there all these years, and you still go back. You were in Afghanistan just a few months ago. Yes. Thank God you weren't there this past weekend. Well, <laughs> uh, what, paint a picture for Americans, uh, Westerners who are watching or listening right now, of what life is like in that city. Compare it to a major metropolitan area here in the United States, say Washington, D.C., or Philadelphia, Charlotte, North Carolina? Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, the traffic very, is very chaotic. You have a city of 6 million people and probably a million cars, and you have no traffic lights. Wow. I can just, just, wow. just to manage that is, is impossible. So it's, uh, it's absolutely chaotic. It's, uh, you can probably walk faster than you can drive uh, but uh, but nobody walks because uh, because it's not safe um, uh, people came and, and grabbed you and took your phone from you and if you didn't give it to them they would kill you <laughs> security was was terrible uh, after dark nobody went out of the houses and everybody has has uh, has uh, high walls around the house. Have built high walls around the house, and you have steel doors, uh, uh, very strong steel doors, and uh, people lived in fear. Now, you were fortunate that that you didn't live in poverty, as you said so many people do in Afghanistan. But but what about normal creature comforts that you have here in the United States? Was the electricity, for example, was that? Uh, readily available and consistent, that you have clean drinking water, the, those kinds of things that we take for granted here. None of the above. <laughs> yeah. uh, the water is dirty. Uh, you can't drink it. Uh, uh, electricity, there's, there's, no, there's no running water in most of Kabul. Uh, there's no sewage system in most of Kabul. Uh, the electricity comes and goes, comes and goes. And maybe if you count together, all the electricity you had, maybe you had four hours of electricity in, in 24 hours. Uh, it's a life uh, that I think the average American uh, cannot even visualize and cannot, and, and, and it's, it's a very, very difficult life, at least 
for people like us uh, who are blessed of having everything ready, uh, the way they survive. Uh, I, I, I sometimes wonder how they, they survive. I got to know a family, um, a husband, wife, three kids, one daughter, two sons. Uh, the husband is, uh, is uh, the retired and probably gets very little money. Uh, uh, one of the kids goes to high school and one of the kids goes, the daughter goes to high school and one of the, 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 the second son goes to high school. The, the older son goes to university. And the only person working is the mother and the, the wife. She gets 7,000 Afghanis a month, 7,000 Afghanis, several months ago when I was there was about $90. We believe that if a person has less than $2 a day is, is poor, very poor. Now, can you imagine $90 a month for five people? Yeah. It's, it, I mean, we, we can't, I, I cannot, I cannot understand how they survive. And it's but my understanding do. that the Kabul, as bad as, as you make it sound, is by far the most advanced city in that country. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's the high water mark. That's the high water mark, yes. Mr. Sean Saab, our guest today on Zoom into Books. Uh, we're talking about Afghanistan and the, the turn of events there. And also uh, this year's book, Silent Trees. Uh, which he wrote. Uh, it's a fiction novel. I, I want to talk to you about the inspiration for this book. Uh, power, passion, and war-torn Afghanistan. This is a made-up story, but there's some... It's, it's fiction. There, there's there's some... Uh, uh, although it's a page-turner and it's fiction, there's... Uh, you paint a picture that sounds very much like what it was like there when you were a young man. I think that... Uh... Uh, writers uh, who write fiction. I, I personally don't think we can write fiction in a, in a void. We, it's, it's, it's what we see, what we feel, what we experience. And that what we write then is part of that. You can't really, uh, uh, I mean, as somebody who writes about, about, about uh, the, uh, the, the space, uh, maybe you can invite, you can, you can invent everything. But if you write about life here, uh, it's part of your life. Yes, yes, it's part of what you have experienced, maybe in another way. It's maybe a dramatization of what you what you feel and what you have seen, but it's part of you ultimately, yes. And uh, the reviews were just incredible. Kirkus Reviews calls uh, Nasir's book, Silent Trees, a fine evocation of a crucial era in Afghanistan uh u.s review of books a glimpse into afghanistan just prior to russian or american occupation shansab gives his readers an idea of the overwhelming complexity and corruption that can occur uh the diplomatic courier says silent trees is an enthralling political and personal fiction uh if you're interested in uh, in political books uh, political fiction it's a very different kind of read because it's politics, uh, behind the scenes look at an Afghanistan that is no more. However, uh, you know, it, it is much as it has always been for thousands of years now. Um, now that the Taliban is in rule, will you go back to Afghanistan? 
uh, I have uh, decided to go back, uh, and I hope. What's I can... wrong with you? <laughs> Why are you going back? You know, uh, you know, I I didn't grow up in Afghanistan, but I was born there, and I do have uh, an enormous affection for the average Afghan. Okay. Uh, they are very simple people. Uh, they are very hospitable. Um, uh, they are not what the leadership is. They are the opposite what the leadership is. They are honest. Uh, they are sincere. Uh, they have a very harsh life, and uh, and I can't separate myself from that. And there's a there's a thread that binds me to them, and I have told myself many many times, you don't have anything to do with that anymore. Your children are here. I have grandchildren who were born here. I have a house here that I love. love. I can't cut it. When you see the, the footage uh, of what's happening at Karzai International Airport, you want to be in the middle of all that? Uh, what do your kids I, tell I, well, you? <laughs> well, my, 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 my kids think that I'm, I'm totally out of my mind. <laughs> I think, I think I'm side with your kids on that. Until things calm down over there a little bit. Yes. And, and my, my, my nephew, Steve, from the Army, he, he wrote to me, this is a none, none thing you should do. <laughs> and, and listen, you call him Steve, but you may want to share with our viewers who Steve is. Steve is my uh, my nephew. Yeah. He is uh, the, the only son of my oldest brother, uh, who is not alive because he, many years ago he committed suicide. Uh, and he's the product of, of, of the love affair of an Afghan um, student and, 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 the, uh, and, the, and, the, and a German girl. Steve has done pretty well for himself career-wise. What does Steve <laughs> do for a living now? Uh, Steve is a four-star general in the American U.S. Army. And he commands Africa from Germany <laughs> because the African the African uh, uh, the command center is not in Africa, it's in Germany, outside Stuttgart. So you got thousands of people trying to get out of that country, and you're going to be the only guy going in that direction. <laughs> well, Steve wrote to me, don't do it. <laughs> so I side well, with Steve. I'm yeah, with Steve on yeah. this. But I will wait till the settle until till the dust is settled and, and see, see what comes out of there. So you're not a futurist. You're a smart guy, and you knew that country very well. And at the beginning of the show, we read this this quote that you made in 2013, where you pretty much called this exactly as it played out. So I'm going to ask you to put your futurist hat on now. <laughs> what happens next in Afghanistan, specifically as it relates to the United States? For example, are we going to have to go back in there to make sure that uh, that it doesn't again become uh, you know, a haven for terrorists. I, I very much hope that the United States does not quit Afghanistan completely. I think we have to be present. We have to have, no matter what happens. The United States, whether we like it or not, is militarily, politically, economically, and I think even culturally, a global power. It cannot afford, whether we like it or not, we cannot afford to be absent totally. We especially in places like that, especially in the Middle East, especially in South South Asia, we have to be present because that is the only way we can we can change things. If you're not there, 
we, we have no, no power to change anything. Uh, so we have to influence these people and we have, have to be there. And I pray to God that that we will do that. Earlier today, you know, Nasir and I are in, in Washington, D.C., in the suburbs of Washington. I talked to a, a former intelligence officer who was uh, did three deployments there, uh, was in country fairly recently um, uh, with uh, a government agency that cannot be named. Um, he told me, Nasir, that from his perspective as an intelligence analyst, that one of the biggest mistakes Americans made was not understanding and, and being able to wrap their, their heads around the culture and the tribalism there, that Americans never really got it. What do we not get about Afghanistan? What do we not understand that would help? I would like to uh, go beyond Afghanistan and, and conclude and, and include the third world. Uh, the United States was enormously successful after World War II when it dealt with Eastern Europe, with the communist world, with Japan. These were all countries that had, that had uh, uh, economic backgrounds similar to the United States, who had philosophical backgrounds similar to the United States, and the US knew how to treat them. And Germany is, 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 was, was rebuilt, Japan was rebuilt, and Eastern Europe now is part of, of NATO. Um, the United States never learned how to, uh, how to treat or understand the third world. The third world, most of the third world have no industrial background. Uh, 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 they're they're uh, uh, not developed economically. Uh, they are, most of them are religiously oriented. Uh, secularism is not there. The, the, especially in the Islamic world, uh, the, the, the separation of, of politics, government, and religion is not there. Uh, it's, it's, it's a different world, and America has never tried to really understand it. I, 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 think, I think the answer is that uh, historically, the United States is a very young country. It exists for, for, for some 200 plus years. Right. Uh, and Afghanistan, for example, has, has been there for 3,000 years. Uh, and the, the third world, they have a long history. Uh, they have a totally different culture. Uh, and they are still formed uh, and think in terms of their background. And uh, I hope that we will, after this experience with Afghanistan, uh, that we will actually try to learn how those people think, what they want, what they dislike, what they like, and then, and then find, find a way to, to work with them. And slowly and gradually perhaps to, uh, to, to help them move uh, in, in terms of time, uh, move to, the, to, to today's world. That's the only way to do it. So what you're saying is that perhaps an Afghanistan native and a West Virginia boy could sit in a room together and shake hands <laughs> and learn Always. from one another. Always, yes. <laughs> Nasir Shan Saab is our guest. The Thank book is much. Silent Trees. It's a uh, power and passion, war-torn Afghanistan from the publisher page imprint and headline books. 
I'll be thinking about your country and I'll be praying for your people. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wherever you're watching today, wherever you're listening, thank you so much for joining us today. For Kathy Teets and the entire gang at Headline Books and for our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, sponsors of the Big Time Talker podcast, I'm Burke Allen for Nasir Shansab, live in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Now go out there and make it a great day. Bye, everybody.